0: For every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Jesus. Those are the words of Robert Murray Machane, as some of you may know. He was a pastor in Scotland in the first half of the 19th century. He was born in Edinburgh in 1813. And what's striking about his life is that it was only 29 years, and yet we still remember him. People still remember his name. Some folks still read what he wrote, read his annual Bible reading plan that he designed. He died of typhus fever in 1843. And two years later, his friend and a fellow pastor named Andrew Bonar published Memoir and Remains of the Reverend Robert Murray Machine which in time came to be published in over a 100 editions in just English. And in this Memoir and Remains book by Wiener appears a letter that Mishane wrote to a friend. Let me read two paragraphs to you from that letter. This is where the famous Mishane quote comes from, but the context is rich. He says to his friend, "'Learn much of the Lord Jesus, For every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely, such infinite majesty, and yet such meekness and grace, and all for sinners, even the chief. Live much in the smiles of God. Bask in his beams. Feel his all-seeing eye settled on you in love, and rest in his almighty arms." Let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that is in Him. Let the Holy Spirit fill every chamber of your heart so that there will be no room for folly or the world or Satan or the flesh. So, for every one look at yourself, he said. Ten looks. At Christ. And I suspect that Robert Murray Machine's counsel for this friend was striking in his own day. But now, some 180 years later, what are we to make of it? Living in an age so saturated in and dominated by the almighty self. What a ruse. Ten looks at Christ. For everyone, look at the self, was a countercultural word in Machine's day. And how much more so now for us? And what healing might there be for our souls in heeding such counsel? How impoverished are we today for our subtle and overt fixations on and fascinations with self? as we dwell in a generation that both nourishes our native love of self and encourages and cultivates a love for self that we might not even dare have if we weren't so encouraged by society for it. And so I wanna ask you to come on a journey with me this evening. I invite you in these moments, as much as you're able, to put self aside. And together, let's take 10 looks at jesus so in this first session what we want to do is take five looks at jesus from eternity past up to the cross and then we'll break and we'll come back for a second session and pick up at the resurrection and go through eternity future and with each one of these looks at jesus i'll try to anchor it in a particular biblical text though More than one biblical text will inform each one of the looks, but there'll be one anchor text, and then I'll try to give you a key term that will define that we can put with that look at Jesus as we go through. So, 10 looks at Jesus. Let me pray that God would be pleased to bless it. So, Father in heaven, we want to, at least for this evening, heed the counsel of this dear deceased brother from almost 200 years ago. And I pray that you would strengthen us, would you bless us, would you enlighten us, would you empower us, would you awaken us as we look at your son. We want to see his glory. We want to marvel appropriately at who he is and what he shows us of you. And so as we take these looks at Jesus, would you be on it? by the power of your spirit, through the power of your word. And would you help us here in these moments? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, look number one. Here we go. He delighted his father before creation. He delighted his father before creation. Not only did he exist before creation with all the implications that would have for his deity, but as divine son, He delighted his father, as we'll see. But let's start with an anchor text in John 1, 1 to 3. In the beginning was the Word, capital W Word, the eternal divine Son. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So Jesus... The eternal divine son, before he became man, existed in the beginning with his father. And John says, one, he was toward God, literally toward God, with God, facing him. And two, he was God himself. He was God. Before anything was created, he was, before anything created was created, he was, he existed. All things were made through him, John says, and In case it wasn't enough for him to say that, just to clarify, he wants to make sure we get this. If that's not enough, without him was not anything made that was made. So he was not made. The word, the divine son was not made. He was not created. He himself is God. He is God's own fellow and God's own self. So our key term for this first look is pre-existence. The divine son, the second person of the Trinity, that one that we now know as Jesus of Nazareth and the Christ, pre-existed his human life. Before he came and before he existed as man, he pre-existed which we see deeply embedded in various ways throughout the New Testament. So here's three ways among others that the New Testament authors again and again testify to his pre-existence. First, he came. Over and over again, they talk about his coming, which means he was somewhere and he came to earth in a way that we did not come. We began, we did not come from heaven. Mark 10, 45, the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. John 3, 13, the Son of Man descended from heaven. Hebrews 10, 5, Christ came into the world. 1 Timothy 1, 15, Christ came into the world to save sinners. So he was in heaven with his Father, eternally as God, and he came. Second, he was sent. We see that language of sending. And it's different than just the sending of a human prophet that may have been sent like Jeremiah from Anatoth to Jerusalem. He wasn't sent from one human place to another. He was sent from heaven, Galatians 4, four, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman. And in Mark 12, in Jesus' parable, he talks about the owner of the vineyard sending his beloved son. So he came, he was sent. Third, he was given. The father gave him. John 3.16. God loved the world in this way that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. In Romans 8, 32, God the Father did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. So he came, he was sent, he was given. So fully God himself, Christ was given, he was sent, he came, and he not only pre-existed his coming as human, but he pre-existed the whole creation, says John so 1.1. So what then was the son doing for these endless ages of eternity past before there was time itself? One answer was he was delighting his father. Proverbs 8 personifies God's wisdom in such a way that for 2,000 years, Christians can't help but see the pre existent Christ when they turn to Proverbs 8. Let us just read you a section of it here in verses 22 to 31. And here, here, this is divine wisdom personified speaking. Hear, hear both divine wisdom and the second person of the Trinity speaking. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago, I was set up at the first, before the beginning of the earth. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman. I was daily his delight rejoicing before Him always, rejoicing in His inhabited world, and delighting in the children of man. So, divine wisdom, before the foundation of the world, rejoiced in God, and God delighted in divine wisdom. Or, you can say, the Son rejoiced in His Father, and the Father delighted in His Son. And this delight of the Father in His Son before creation ever was, helps to explain what I frankly think is an amazing claim in Hebrews 1. The very beginning of Hebrews 1. You may know these verses well from growing up in church and being around the faith if you're not new to the Christian faith, but there is a phrase in Hebrews 1 that I think we tend to pass over so quickly that is spectacular about the glory of the Son before the creation. Let me read to you verses 1 and 2 of Hebrews 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. All right, did you catch that? The father, Hebrews says, appointed his son heir of all things. And then he says, through whom also he created the world. The appointment as heir comes first. Then the creation of the world follows from that as an afterthought, as the plan for the accomplishing of the appointment of the son as the heir of all things. So with that appointment in view, God makes the world to fulfill his plan. Which means God made the world and all of history to give it as a gift to his son, that he might be the heir of all things. So look number one. The eternal son delighted his father before creation. And from that delight, the father appointed to make a world and a story of the world that would make much of his beloved son. So look number 1. Look number 2. He became man. This pre-existent son, eternally begotten, not made, became man not only was he sent not only did he come not only was he given but he became key text here john 1 14 the word which we just saw was jesus second person of the trinity before all time the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory glory is of the only son from the father full of grace and truth So this eternal word that we heard about in John 1.1 became flesh, which means he became man, became human. He took on our flesh and blood, our humanity. He became human like us. So 2 Corinthians 8.9 says, though he was rich, referring to him being God, though he was rich, he became poor. As man, by coming among us. But that becoming, that idea might pose a problem to our minds depending on how you think about becoming. Does becoming mean that somehow he ceases to be God? He was something and he became something else? Is that what becoming means? Does somehow he empty himself of deity? As if that was possible so that he might become human? In other words, do we think that humanity and deity somehow operate on the same level where it's mutually exclusive? To the degree that he's God, he must not be man. To the degree he becomes man, he must not be God. The key text here is Philippians 2, verses 5 to 7, about his emptying, as you may know. There the Apostle Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. We'll come back to verse 8 in a minute. But for now, what does it mean that he emptied himself? here in Philippians 2. Three observations on Philippians 2. First, note his clear deity. Paul says he was in the form of God. And being in the form of God coordinates with that phrase equality with God. So he shared in the Godhead as one divine person among others and as God in his own right. That's first. First where it begins number two then this emptying of himself paul says relates to prerogative we might say not divine power he did not grasp or cling to divine rights that may have kept him from the finitude and limitations of coming into our humanity and our fallen world and the suffering that would come to him by virtue of being human and entering in as a creature Third, then, this emptying, as Paul clarifies in the next line, was a taking, not a losing. We think of emptying as losing. This is a different kind of emptying. He says it's an emptying that's a taking, not a losing. In this sense, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. The emptying comes through taking, not through losing divinity or divine power, but by taking humanity. So in becoming man, he does not jettison his deity, as if that was even possible, but he takes our humanity, not subtracting divine power, but adding humanity to his person and thus he became man as well as being God. Without ceasing to be God, he added humanity to his person and became the God-man in an utterly unique way. We do not have deity attributed to our person. And God the Father and God the Spirit do not have humanity attributed to their person. But the God-man is unique in all the universe as having both divinity and humanity rightly attributed to his person by becoming man in the incarnation. So that's our key word for number two, incarnation. And it means, literally, the infleshing, or the putting on, or the adding of human flesh and human nature to his eternal divine person. So Jesus took a human body. He was born. In the creed we say he was conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He grew. He grew tired in his human body. He slept. He got hungry and thirsty. He experienced physical weakness. He suffered. And as Colossians 2.9 says, in him. The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. But humanity is not just body, it's also soul or spirit, human spirit. To be fully man, he took on our full humanity, both body and soul. And this is often overlooked. Jesus displays clearly in the gospels human emotions, sorrow, compassion, anger, joy. He groans in that instance in Mark 7 and 8. He's distressed, he's troubled even. Without having sinful anxiety, he's troubled. He wept in John 11. He prayed with loud cries and tears, Hebrews 5 tells us. As John Calvin summed it up, Christ has put on our feelings as well as our flesh. But a human soul means not only human emotions, but also a human mind. Have you ever considered this? The human mind of Christ? He increased in stature, body, and in wisdom. Luke chapter 2, verse 52 says. And how else but with respect to a finite human mind, which he added to his person at the incarnation, might Jesus say in Mark chapter 13 with about his second coming concerning that day and that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As God, He knew all, but as man, he did not know all. What he knew, he knew without sin, but he did not know all with respect to his human mind, even as he did know all with respect to his divine mind. So too, we might identify a human will in the God man, in addition to the divine will that he shares with his father with respect to his deity. So Jesus can say in John chapter six, verse 38, I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And then, when it mattered most, he chose with that human will to embrace the divine will rather than the life-preserving impulse to which the human will is naturally given. When he said in Gethsemane, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, but not as I will with my human will, but as you will. And now I embrace the divine will, which is also mine with my human will. More on his will in a few minutes. So he became man, And so fully so that to the human eye and the human ear, he was utterly manifestly human. They did not debate in the early church whether he was human. That was not up for discussion. That was obvious. What was the challenge is how a human might be God. What a condescension and what a dignifying of our humanity as God's crowning creature of creation, that God himself would become one of us. Number three, look number three. He lived to his Father's glory. This can be an easy, easy to overlook aspect of his human life. Here our key term is devotion. He devoted his human life on earth to his father's glory. It is appropriate that at his birth the angels would announce glory to God. And then, at the other end of his life, at his death, a Roman centurion who stood by at the cross and saw him breathe his last, caught a glimpse of the glory of God and praised God. That's what Luke 23 says, but what the Roman centurion did from beginning to end of his human life He brought glory to his Father. Jesus consecrated his life to the honor and praise of his Father over and over again in the Gospels. The reported effect of Jesus' ministry is not that the crowds praised him, but that they glorified God. Mark 2, Matthew 9, Luke 5. In fact, glorifying God is Matthew's summary effect all of Jesus' miracle working. You love this text, this is, this is Matthew 15, 31. The crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. He did the miracles in such a way that He glorified His Father. So the effect, of his human life was the glory of his father, but what about Jesus' own intent? What did Jesus mean to do? Does he say anything about what his intention was in his human life? Well, he says in John five forty three that he comes not in his own name. That's similar to say to his own glory. He comes not in his own name, but in his father's name. And he sums up his whole life In John 8, 49 is, I honor my Father. And his intent to glorify his Father gets even more explicit as he approaches the cross, in particular in John's Gospel. Three times in his high priestly prayer in John 17, the night before he died, he says, verse four, I glorified you on earth. Verse six, I have manifested your name that is to his glory. Verse 26, I have made known to them your name. His ministry of healing and teaching, his patience, his disciple making, all stemmed from his utter devotion to the glory and honor and praise of his Father. And this led both to and flowed from his various habits. Of daily devotion, which fed his human soul on his Father and shaped his heart and mind for the work his Father had given him to do. We don't have a lot about Jesus' daily personal habits in the Gospels, but what we have about Jesus is way more than what we have about anybody else in the Bible. We don't know anything about Isaiah's devotional habits, or Moses's, or Paul's, or Peter's but we have a lot in four gospel accounts about some of the patterns in Jesus' life. It's really remarkable. One way to capture it that is both manifestly true of Jesus' life and also, I think, applicable to ours is that he devoted himself to his father's word. That's scripture. And to his father's ear in prayer and to, what do we call it, The body of believers, his father's body, and the fellowship of the faithful. These three principles form a matrix in which Jesus lived his human life to the devotion of his father. It really is striking to rehearse the place of his father's word in the earthly life of the incarnate son. He was a man who was captivated first personally and then in his teaching by what is written. He says over and over again, he refers to what is written. And in the wilderness testing, three times he quotes scripture as he fights off the satanic temptations. And in his hometown, he picks up the scroll of Isaiah and spoke of its fulfillment in their midst as he read it. And he spoke of his cousin, John, as he of whom it is written, as he refers to him as the new Elijah. And he quotes scripture as he clears the temple of money changers. And he quotes scripture as he uh, combats the proud Pharisees. Every step toward Calvary, he says, goes as it is written. So the word of his father in scripture played a markedly central role in the life of Jesus. He was a man of God's word. But also, a striking pattern in his life is the way that he retreated for prayer and then returned for ministry. Watch this as you read the Gospels. It's amazing how often he's retreating, moving to a wilderness or desolate place, then coming back to do ministry. Jesus was a man of prayer who availed himself of his father's ear often withdrawing from the normal patterns in daily city life and town life to meet with his father in the wilderness. And again and again, he went to desolate places to pray. Often he went alone. And he also took his men with him on many occasions and taught them that pattern of getting away to pray to his father. He says to his disciples in Mark six thirty one. Come away by yourself to a desolate place and rest a while. And in such times, as well as in his daily investment in his disciples, he availed himself of the fellowship, of the corporate body of the faithful, which is a very important and often overlooked means of God's grace in the Christian life. Jesus, too, drew holy strength for his soul and experienced a holy shaping through the lives of the faithful, beginning with his own mother. And so, in looking at his life of devotion to his father, we find at bottom a man of the word and prayer, which is gloriously imitable. Even the God-man availed himself of God's daily means of grace for the good of his soul through habits of accessing and rehearsing God's word and approaching him in prayer, all while living in the fellowship of those who were devoted to God. Look number four, he humbled himself. This one who lived devoted to his Father's glory humbled himself. So now we come back to Philippians 2. And this time we'll pick up verse eight. Let me start back again at verse six and we'll pick up verse eight this time in Philippians two. Being in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross three of the most amazing words in all the Bible about God himself in human form that he humbled himself. Jesus' humbling not only had a climactic moment, as we'll see, but it was a life of obedience to his father. So for look number four, our key word is submission. Submission. It's a really popular word these days. <laughs> to submit means to accept or yield to the will and authority of another. First, in becoming human, Jesus submitted as a child to the authority of his human parents. Luke 2.51, after his visit to the temple at age 12, where he impresses everybody by how he's interacting and asking questions with the leaders in the temple, Luke reports, he went down with them from Jerusalem and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. Not just baby Jesus or five-year-old Jesus, 12-year-old Jesus on the cusp of manhood, amazing people in Jerusalem, goes back to Nazareth and submits to his parents. By virtue of becoming human, he entered into various human relationships and contexts in which he was to have a disposition to yield. And there is nothing dehumanizing in such God-designed submission. In fact, Nothing unbecoming of God himself in human flesh. Submission, we might say, is actually humanizing because it acknowledges the limits of our human knowledge and strength and abilities, and it acknowledges the God-ordained callings which he has given us in various ways, and it embraces our humanity. And for us, we embrace not pretending to be God when we submit in the right places. Not for Jesus, he was God. Though he was God, he was also human. And with respect to his human life, he righteously accepted and yielded to the will of those whom he was assigned to submit, beginning with his parents. But of course, his greatest and most defining submission was to the will of his father so we've already seen in john 6:38 he says i have come down from heaven not to do my own will not a rogue agent but the will of him who sent me throughout jesus life culminating in the garden of gethsemane he chose to submit his natural human will to the will of his Father. He was, in a sense, training for this his whole life. Training for Gethsemane, his whole life. Training his human will, not only away from sin, but toward doing the will of his Father. And as he prays in the garden, Father, not my will, but yours be done, he completes the lifelong project of humbling himself. And now he does so at this most critical moment. Judas is about to come. Betray him with a kiss. The guards are about to come and seize him. The choice will be gone once the guards come. But until they come, he can choose. And he chooses to stay. And humble himself. And when the guards come and he is taken in unjust custody, having humbled himself, he will be utterly humiliated, slandered, falsely accused, unjustly beaten, flogged, crucified, yet not against his will, but chosen he humbled himself at the cross. In at least three distinct settings in Jesus' teaching, there's a a line he repeats. I, I, I wonder if those who traveled around with Jesus heard him in several sessions. When he started this line, they knew how to complete it. He says it all the time. He said, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And the one who humbles himself will be exalted. One of his most repeated teachings. But he not only taught it, Jesus lived it. He lived it. He humbled himself. And he waited on his father's perfect timing and initiative to exalt him. Look number five here to end our first session. He died for sins not his own. At this point, we might ask, why was such a man executed? He did not deserve to die. In fact, this is the only human life in history that did not deserve death. The only sinless human life. And so now our key term is substitution his death like the sacrificial system in israel that had operated for centuries going back to moses was a substitutionary system an innocent party goat bull lamb bird without blemish served as a substitute for the guilt and blemish of the people. And so in ancient ancient Israel, God ordained and permitted under the terms of the first covenant that sacrificial animals who themselves did not deserve death might stand in, that is, might be substitutes for God's people who had sinned. The reality of sin demanded reckoning. Sin is an assault on the glory of God, an assault on God himself. Sin at its heart is a preferring of other things to God. Profoundly dishonors him. It is cosmic treason. Sin cannot simply be swept under the rug without God himself despising his own glory and value. So God designed in his grace a temporary measure whereby his people's sin might be dealt with without they themselves incurring the penalty of death. And so for centuries, God's people saw this provision as both an amazing grace in their lifetimes and as anticipating something greater. It continued to punt something that needed to be reckoned with. After all, in the final count, as Hebrews 10:4 says, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away human sin. Bulls and goats could take away bulls and goats sin if they had it. Human blood would be necessary for the paying of human sin. Blood meaning. Death. And so for centuries, the shedding of sacrificial blood in Israel had anticipated that one imaginably great, once-for-all sacrifice would come, must come, to secure God's full acceptance of His sinful people forever. And it would have had been one thing if Jesus, before the cross would have said, I come to give my life as a ransom for many. Or for his apostles, Peter, John, Paul, to explain it later in great detail. That's one thing. But remarkably, this revelation that a single human sacrifice might somehow count for the sins of the many came seven centuries before Jesus. In the prophecy of Isaiah, he tells of a coming suffering servant who was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. And so the question is why was this man despised? Why was he rejected? Did he make some error? Did he deserve the despising and reduction? Not for any failures of his own, as we might assume. And Isaiah then dares to go where Moses had only pointed. It's Isaiah 53, 4 to 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. We misunderstood. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Our sorrows made him a man of sorrows. Our griefs acquainted him with grief. He was pierced, he bled for our transgressions. He was crushed, he died for our iniquities. He was wounded by men that believing souls might be healed before God. We whom he saves are the sinners. We're not the Savior. Yet, on the righteous, unblemished one, God laid our iniquities. And that is substitution. God condemned our sin in the human flesh of Jesus Christ. So as we close this first session, remember Jesus chose this this was not cosmic child abuse jesus chose it his submission was not without joy his obedience was not without willingness he did not just endure death for those who believe he embraced it hebrews 12 2 says for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. And I would not be surprised if Hebrews says that based on what Isaiah says in Isaiah fifty three eleven. It's amazing. Isaiah says this. Out of the anguish of his soul, he will see see his offspring, see his accomplishment. Out of the anguish of his soul in Gethsemane, at the cross, he will see and be satisfied for the joy set before him. He will endure the cross. So what sustained Jesus on that dark Friday that we now call Good Friday because of substitution, on the single most horrible day in the history of the world, What sustained him was joy. He saw ahead and was satisfied enough that the joy he tasted in the present sustained him through the agony, through the distress, through the suffering, through the pain of the cross. So unlike animals who stood in temporarily as substitutes for God's people in the Old Covenant, Jesus willed it with his human will he embraced it it pleased him to give his own life as a substitute for sinners for the joy of the many who would believe and the glory of his father and so rightly we say what wondrous love is this so father in heaven as we close this first session in these first five looks at Jesus, we stand in awe of the God-man, not only in his eternal deity and preexistence and in the remarkable stooping to become man in the incarnation, the way he lived to your glory and utter devotion as an example for us, the way he humbled himself and submitted himself before you, but how amazing that he went to the cross for sins not his own, Father, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the door of salvation he opened by embracing with his human will the suffering of the cross on our behalf. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.